You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Good evening. Good to see you all here tonight. As I look around, I see some uh, guests, see some old friends. Glad to, uh, really glad to see your faces tonight as we come together on this Good Friday. Tonight we're going to look at uh, a portion of Mark's account of the death of Jesus. The, our text is Mark 15, uh, verses 6 through 15, and then we're going to skip down to verses 33 through 39. This is a communion meditation tonight, so I'm going to be pulling some big ideas out of it rather than going through this verse by verse. Mark 15, 6 through 15, and then verses 33 through 39. It's printed for you in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you. And I'm going to ask you, if you're able, uh, one more time to stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark 15, starting at verse 6. Now at the feast, that's the feast of the Passover. Now at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Skipping down to verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that is noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are stepping onto holy ground as we consider the death of Jesus on a Roman cross. So by your Holy Spirit, I would ask that you would help me 
to communicate truthfully and clearly and help us all to respond rightly to the sacrifice of your son Jesus for us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, most of you know, of course, that Christianity is distinctive among the world religions in in that its defining central symbol uh, is an instrument of execution. An instrument of execution that was so painful and so cruel uh, that even uh, Roman citizens would not even uh, mention the cross in polite company. It, It was, in their words, obscene. And yet, as novelist Flannery O'Connor once wrote, the cross is remarkably the proof that our world has, for all its horror, been found by God to be worth dying for. And that's what we're focusing on tonight, the death of Jesus. Now, what makes Jesus' death qualitatively different from the death of any other great leader, religious or otherwise. Well, you know, after 2,000 years, why do we come together annually on Good Friday and remember his death? Indeed, why on every Sunday of the year uh, do we come together to remember and, and celebrate the death of Jesus? Well, the obvious answer has already been suggested by Flannery O'Connor's quote, right, that when Jesus died, it wasn't just a human leader that died. Uh, In a very real sense, God died too. Jesus is 100% human. He is also 100% God. Now, there's mystery there, but that is the unquestioned testimony of the Bible, And that makes his death as the God-man essentially different, right? Different in essence from the death of any other great leader in history. So I guess the real question is, what did the death of the God-man accomplish? What did it do? Why should you care? Those are relevant questions at any time. It's particularly relevant in our day when the death of Jesus is, is, uh, continues to be mocked, continues to be uh, denied, continues to be uh, thrown into the category of the mythological. So let's answer those questions uh, from this account that we just read. And, and I, going to suggest that this this account lets us in on three big realities about Jesus' death. First, Jesus' death was a power-shifting death. Second, Jesus' death was a substituting death. And then third and finally, Jesus' death was an intimacy-increasing death. So a power-shifting death, a substituting death, and finally, an intimacy-increasing death. 
So as we prepare to come to this table where the bread and the wine silently preach to us of the death of Jesus, let's, let's look at each one of those three things. First, Jesus' death was a power-shifting death. One of the things I discovered this week as I reflected on what uh, you know is a, a familiar account to all of us is something I'd never, uh, never learned, and that is that very early Christian tradition, going back as far as, uh, as the man named Origen, one of the early church fathers, um, we, we learned that the, the early, that early Christian tradition said that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. Now that wouldn't be all that unusual. Jesus was, uh, was a common name, uh, but it does make Pilate's day interesting. He had two Jesuses on his hands. And they could not be more different. And in fact, what you see here really are, are two alter egos. Jesus Barabbas was a political activist, a political revolutionary. He believed that what mattered, that what brought about positive social change was power, political power, military power, economic power. And that's what Barabbas and, and people with Barabbas were using to advance the interests of Israel uh, over, as over against Rome. But Jesus of Nazareth, the other Jesus, was very different. He didn't come to underwrite or support or join any human power structures. That, that's what amazed Pilate. As Pilate, Pontius Pilate interviewed Jesus, he was so positively struck by, by Jesus' uh, you know, denial of any sort of reference to the powers that might be able to save him in Pilate's mind. As one commentator put it, on that day, Jesus exposed as false gods the very powers in which men and women take most pride and invest most hope. Before Jesus, before Good Friday, it was all about political, military, and economic power. After Jesus, after Good Friday, it is all about the cross and the resurrection. Power becomes about giving up power. Power becomes about serving, giving, loving, forgiving even dying. But the crowd on Good Friday voted for Barabbas. They wanted the way of, of power and politics. And that should be no big surprise. Um, people still do that today. Political power, military power, economic power, right? The movement of armies, the, 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 the actions of, of, of houses of Congress, uh, the movement of markets. 
These are followed in the news. They're in our face all the time. Uh, it is drummed into us that this is, this is what moves history. This is how history changes. But the reality is that on Good Friday, Jesus in that self-sacrificing death of his that so staggered Pilate unleashed an unimagined power. A power so far and above any human power. And that power revolutionized the world and it continues to revolutionize the world and it will until Jesus returns. You know, just think, I've, I've been reading a little about ancient history. I should be consulting my son. He's the expert on those things. But, you know, how Christianity uh, rose up in the Roman Empire and, in fact, became the dominant power in the world and has outlasted the Roman Empire, outlasted countless empires. What, what, what did the Christians do? Well, it certainly wasn't a political or military or economic effort. The early church had none of that power. It was normal people, Christ followers just like you and me, going about their jobs diligently and honestly, worshiping in their churches, getting baptized, taking communion, Supporting the poor, taking, taking in uh, the marginalized in, in, in those early days, Jesus' days, that meant um, taking in the, 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 the thousands of infants exposed on garbage dumps, mostly little girls. The ratio in Rome the Roman Empire was about 140 men to 100 women because of the practice of female infanticide. Christians took the, went to the garbage dumps and kicked, took those kids in, found them homes. They took care of, of women who were marginalized, treated like chattel, and perhaps most remarkably, and certainly most remarkable to the recipients of their care, and, and really relevant for our time, what Christians did uh, in, in Rome, in the, in the Roman Empire, which was from time to time hit by plagues, is that Christians chose to stay in the cities stay in the cities of their occupiers when everybody else was, that could was running for the hills, literally, running for the hills. The Christians stayed behind, surrendering their rights, surrendering their comforts, surrendering their security to nurse plague-stricken people back to health, very often at the cost of their own lives. That changed the world. That revolutionized the world. And that's Jesus' way. And it's the way of Jesus' people. On Good Friday, power was shifted. 
The axis on which history turns was changed. History now no longer turns on human power. It turns on the cross and the resurrection. As Jesus himself showed us, we, we gain our lives by losing them. It was a power shift. Jesus' death was a power shifting death. Second, Jesus' death was a substituting death. This is one you know well, and, and we celebrate every Sunday, right? Jesus didn't die for himself, and he didn't die uh, for his own crimes. Barabbas was guilty of sedition. As Mark tells us, he led an insurrection against the Roman authorities uh, during which people were killed. Now Jesus, of course, was completely innocent as Pontius Pilate himself affirmed on several occasions. After examining uh, Jesus, Pilate could find no fault, no guilt uh, in Jesus. But when Pilate let Barabbas go, he ends up binding Jesus over for the very crime that Barabbas had in fact committed and was guilty of, sedition. That was the crime for which Jesus was executed, wrongly, sedition. He claimed to be another king and there was only one king in the Roman Empire and that was Caesar. So Jesus the innocent took the penalty so that there no longer remained a penalty of, for sedition for Barabbas, the guilty, zero. Now think about Barabbas for a moment. Think about that day for him. You know, he was on death row, he knew it. Uh, his time was running out, he knew that. Uh, the day of his execution had arrived. When he woke up that morning, he almost certainly was expecting nothing more than a slow, lingering, torturous, literally excruciating death. I mean, that word excruciating comes from the Latin for cross. The pain of the cross has worked its way into our vocabulary. He was, he was expecting that morning nothing more than an excruciating uh, death. But by that night, although we're not told, presumably Barabbas was home with family and friends celebrating the Jewish Sabbath. It's an unbelievable turn of events, right? Just, it, just a mind-blowing uh, turn of events. I've told you the story before of the time I played with matches and burned a fort down. And in my, you know, seven, eight-year-old mind, I don't remember how old I was, I I've, I've thought I was on death row, for sure. And, uh, and my dad came home from a business trip that night, and I made that inevitable, you know, green mile march from my bedroom to my parents' bedroom, fully expecting never to come out alive in my eight-year-old mind, uh, only to have received grace and I walk out with a present that dad had brought home. And my mind was reeling, and it's that is still stuck with me uh, as, as one of my early lessons in grace. Well, if that was big for an eight-year-old, 
think about for Barabbas, a man guilty of insurrection, guilty of murder, expecting a, a, a tortured death on a cross, and there he is at home. He'd done nothing to merit it, everything to demerit the grace that he received. Didn't even ask for it. It, ca it came to him unbidden. Look, we're supposed to see ourselves in Barabbas. So my question is to you, do you see yourself in, in Barabbas? As we come together tonight around this table, do you see yourself as a, as a guilty person, a guilty sinner, deserving of condemnation, uh, the, the condemnation of God? And yet, if you're a Christian, knowing that even though I know I'm guilty, even though I know I deserve condemnation, I have been saved from that by the substituting sacrificial death of Jesus. Do you really know that Jesus got what you deserved? Do you know that no matter what anybody says, that if you're living by faith in Jesus, you are now under no condemnation. None. You cannot be accused of your past, present, or future sins or convicted of your past, present, or future sins because Jesus has already been accused and convicted for those sins, for you. Your penalty, he paid in full. So that demonic voice of accusation that hateful self-talk, those mean words from your peers, they have no power over you because of what Jesus did, because of his substitution in your place, there is now no condemnation for you and only commendation from the only one in the universe who really ultimately matters and that's him. And you will receive all this. You're the recipient of all of it by grace. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't ask for it. It's all the proactive, initiating love of Jesus for you. I, for one, am thankful that God sovereignly arranged the execution of his son. And you know, you can't read this, as we'll talk about on Easter Sunday, you can't read these accounts without realizing that Jesus was in control here, right? He's, he's not the victim of, the, of circumstances. He's not the victim of the crowd. He's not a hapless substitute for Barabbas. This is all planned. It's all, it's all done willingly, deliberately, consciously. And of course, the death of Jesus is has much more to do than with Barabbas, but for God to sovereignly arrange for that exchange to have taken place, for Barabbas to be released from his crime while Jesus was bound over and substituted in for him and executed for the same crime, it is a vivid personal picture of what the crucifixion means for you and for me.
countless millions of people have had the Barabbas experience being freed by the substituting death of, of Jesus. And that's why we call this Good Friday. Okay, so what have we seen? We've seen it's a power-shifting death, Jesus' death, right? It's, it tur it's turned the tables on what, what, it, what really matters, where real power is found. It's a substituting death. It's not some isolated, unrelated, unattached event in history. There, there was, there's actually a substitution going on that's very personal, that involves you. His death really has an effect on you. And then finally, third, Jesus' death was an intimacy-increasing death. In verse 37, when Jesus cries out and, and he expires, he lets out that last breath. At that very moment, God tore the temple, tore the curtain inside the temple. That curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, that small place uh, in the center of the temple, uh, where God resided, where, and the, the high priest would only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement after elaborate purification rituals. God took that curtain on the, the moment Jesus expired and tore it in two from top to bottom. Weird. What, what, why that? What, what's the significance of that? Well, it's, it's showing you that Jesus opened up a, a new way for you to relate to God. A new, right? It, you, and that way is, is not the tearing of a curtain, it's the tearing of Jesus' body. And as a result of that, all barriers between you and God have, have, been, have dropped down. They've been removed. You have no rights to perform, no purification hoops to jump through, no penance to do. Because of what Jesus accomplished in, the death, in his death, you have immediate, unquestioned, 24-7 access to your Father, right, who happens to be the creator God of the universe. That's what Jesus gave you. You've probably seen the classic old photos, some of my favorite photos in Amer from American annals of American history. The, the, the uh, uh, little John John, the toddler's son of uh, President Kennedy, uh, goofing around in the Oval Office. Whole bunch of pictures of him doing that. He had basically had free reign in the Oval Office. He could run in there anytime and he would be, you know, there are pictures of him, you know, under the desk and climbing on the furniture and hiding behind the curtains and doing all things that a toddler does in the Oval Office. What? Yeah, right, world leaders were lining up to see President Kennedy, right? But John John could go in anytime and, and even break all social barriers and sit on the president's lap. Why? One word, 
intimacy. Intimacy. There was an intimacy uh, between JFK and John John, father and son. It was family, it was blood. My kids and grandkids can do the same with me, so can yours with you. That's because Jesus' death was an intimacy-increasing death. If you, have, if you have faith in Jesus and what he did in dying on the cross for you, you are now, because of Jesus, elevated to the status of an adopted son of the Father. Adoption. Your, your status has been changed, it's been elevated. The intimacy has been increased and that's a status that doesn't go away. You, do you know what Barabbas translates to from the Hebrew? Bar, you, you might know that word uh, if you know bar mitzvah, uh, a bar mitzvah, bar is son. And, and you might know the word Abba, right? We've heard that mentioned that the Spirit works in our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. I remember being in a church in, in Israel and, and a little kid was running around during the coffee time, got lost. He's going, Abba, Abba. Bar Abba. It's, he, that name, Barabbas, literally means son of the Father. Jesus. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the true son of the Father, by his life and death on the cross and his vindicating resurrection, which we'll celebrate on Sunday, has made you, Christian, Barabbas. You are a son of the Father. And I say that even to you women here, right? knowing that the Bible is speaking in, in, in the terms of its culture, and in its culture, sons were the ones that inherited. So the Bible makes it clear that men and women are considered sons in the, for, because we are both co-equal inheritors of the riches of our Father in heaven. Now all of these gospel realities, right, are what give you and me peace and comfort in a time when, the, when those uh, realities are, are, are not very present, right? We're in, we're in a turbulent time. But these gospel realities should give you and do give us peace and comfort. The cross does not take your suffering away, but it does make it meaningful. In suffering, you are following Jesus' path. It's suffering than glory. So these gospel realities give us peace and comfort, but they do more than that. They give us strength and will. Strength and will to follow Jesus. To do what Jesus did for us. To pour out our lives for others. To think of others as more important than ourselves. To forego our comforts and our rights and our securities in order to love and forgive each other and our neighbors. It's the awe-inspiring truth that that's what Jesus did for me and what Jesus did for you. And it's that that strengthens us and gives us the will to turn around and do it for others. 
because we live forever now in the no condemnation zone. We can do risky love. So though this day was unimaginably, unimaginably horrific for Jesus, it, it, it is for us a truly good day. As Pastor James quoted from Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. So let's celebrate that reality, that healing as we come to the table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus' death, even death on a cross. Thank you that because of that, power has shifted and that, it, you know, it doesn't matter that we don't have political power or economic power or, or, or military power, strength or anything. It doesn't matter because you, Father, are where the power is. I thank you, Father, that Jesus has substituted for us so that we stand here as sons without condemnation. And I thank you, Father, that we can call you Father and come to you anytime. And so now be with us as we come to your son's table and minister to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.